The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. morning. The other day, my sister-in-law sent a gift, a new book by a practitioner of Korean Zen named Mu Sung. And the book is called The Heart of the Universe, Exploring the Heart Sutra. And basically what Mu Sung is doing is looking at Mahayana Buddhism and quantum physics and seeing the correlations and seeing how there are two ways of looking at reality that converge in a manner that presents a new paradigm for our understanding. So how many of you have done some reading in quantum physics? A little bit? Yes? Yes? As you know, uh, Western paradigm for um, investigation is based on dualism, right? the Cartesian principle, Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. And with it goes a complete conviction that mind and body are separate. This conviction is so much a part of us, we don't even realize it, right? So because it's so much a part of us that we don't realize it, it's very easy to be taken over by it and not understand how skewed our understanding of reality can be, right? Just, we take it for granted. This mind and this body even though there are plenty of body workers nowadays who tell us and plenty of you know, uh, magazines that uh, have articles that say mind and body are one. And we can certainly see, of course, in our own experience that how we think definitely affects what's going on in our bodies, right? when we get very anxious, very upset, very uh, torn apart by whatever circumstances, we do feel a kind of um, weight, right? A kind of inner inner, uh, confusion that may translate into illness. Or at least a burden, feeling like we're carrying around a heavy burden. And... So often when 
I've been working with young people, as several of you do, at Elmcrest in particular, I've noticed how these young women are walking around with their um, heads lowered and feeling as though they can't ever straighten up their spines. And it's just such a direct manifestation of how they feel, right? And so when I say, if you can sit in a way that brings a kind of inner dignity, like each one of you can be the queen, some of them can get it. But for many of them, after years and years and years of physical agony, abuse, etc., they can't. But doing this kind of meditation with them, little by little, some of them can understand that when we change our body, we can change our mind. So there has been some grasp of this body-mind oneness now and again, right? You have experienced that with kids at Faith Hope, I'm sure. Still, we don't really believe it. It's something that we kind of drift in and out of. But basically, the separation is what we have true conviction about. Separation of self and other, all the way down the line. Dualistic way of seeing the world. And even positing a world itself is dualistic. Through spiritual practice, particularly Mahayana Buddhism, particularly the dailiness of Zazen, in other words, not something special elevated on a platform, but actual just doing and experiencing what happens when we sit in silence and there is this flowing nature of breath. We can also become aware of the flowing nature of our awareness, right? Today, for example, this morning sitting, all the windows are open. The sense that we have of the endlessness of, the spaciousness of mind-body, the air in this room, the air outside this room, are not so different, right? We may think, well, this air is circumscribed by or formed by the shape of this room and perhaps sound is less acute than if we're sitting or standing or walking outside. But still, for the most part, we can experience in sitting, in our meditation, this flowing nature of breath, the breath of all beings, our own breath, our exhalation, rippling outward with no limit. So coming from this kind of experience, as we do it, as I said, not as some kind of special thing, 
but as a just a, a ordinary daily practice. That's why we call it a practice. We can find ourselves opening up in a way that is different from what we might call the knowledge that we have been cultivating and accumulating through this mind-body separation, through this Cartesian way of seeing the world. Something that's different from that kind of knowledge. We may call it intuitive wisdom. Our own natural wisdom. Experienced through this body-mind, this heart-mind. As some of you know, the word heart, heart sutra, in Asian language, Chinese character, xin, means heart-mind at once, not heart and then mind, or mind and then heart, or sometimes heart and sometimes mind. It means heart-mind. No separation of what we might say, thought and feeling, one. And through our experiencing this intuitive wisdom of heart-mind, we can come to understand, again, this word understand, I don't mean in an intellectual way, I mean in a full body-mind way, the true nature of the phenomenal world. If we realize the true nature of the phenomenal world, what is the phenomenal world? cricket, something that we hear right now. What else? What is the phenomenal world? World of cause and effect. Cause and effect. This happens, therefore that occurs. Hmm? The world through our, all our senses, crickets, birds, light, uh, feeling in our legs when we're sitting, all of that. What is the phenomenal world? Is it limited to this body? No. So what is the phenomenal world beyond sensing these material forms What else? Hmm? There is no Pardon? There is no just those words. Okay, we're going to get there, but I want to be sure that we're all aware of what the phenomenal world consists of in our usual separated way of seeing it. There's another aspect to the phenomenal world, which I think you're all very familiar with, which is thought forms. Right? Thought forms. 
We may not think of them as form, but they are form, thought forms. Don't they have a huge effect on your life? Maybe even more than your body, if we want to stick with this dualistic way of seeing that we're all so well-trained in. Thought forms have a huge amount of power over the way we live our lives, right? What's an example of a thought form? Your opinion of someone, how you react to your opinion of someone, therefore how you react to Opinion, opinion is a huge, powerful thought form. Therefore, the third ancestor, Sosan, said, the great way is not difficult. Just avoid opinion, choice, and attachment. How do you do that? So in our Zen practice, we notice, this is important, we notice how stuck we are, how these unexamined, separating ways of looking at reality entrap us. Thought forms entrap us, right? We have to know that through our own experience. It's not enough to read about it, be told about it. We have to experience how stuck we get in order to begin the transformational work of what we may call Mahayana Buddhism or Heart Sutra teachings, Buddhist teachings, or this new paradigm. When we realize the true nature of the phenomenal world, as Lynn said, we can begin to see what? We can begin to see the nothingness, the emptiness, the shinyata of form. Not a separate realm, shinyata, that becomes a new form that we then attach to, but the shinyata of this very form, right here. No even slight difference between phenomena or any thought form and shunyata. One and the same. And so this uh, examination that uh, Mu Song is doing in his book and looking at quantum physics, looking at the Heart Sutra, Mahayana Buddha's teachings, is to really understand what we recite in the Heart Sutra that form is no other than shunyata. Shunyata is no other than form. Form is exactly shunyata. Shunyata exactly form. No, not even one drop of difference. Of course, through daily 
living experience, we, as I said before, we tend to value form, forgetting this shunyata of form. We tend to cling, right? Cling to what it is that we have come to know as a way of being, as a way of conducting our lives. We see every, everything is connected as in our past and it comes to the present and we extend it to the future and these actually are completely empty experiences are nonetheless treated as though they are the way reality is. So we have a kind of misunderstanding, for example, a misunderstanding of the nature of this particular this particular incarnation each one of us is in right now. Depending on psychological karmic astrological genetic, whatever you want to say circumstances that have brought us to this moment we have a particular way of working with this incarnation this unique way of living our lives. And of course, a large part of that has to do with sentient beings need to perpetuate their life forms. This is very basic, right? Of course, in the animal, bird, other realms, we see very clearly the, you know, what Darwin called the survival of the fittest. How so much work is put into just plain survival, and not only one's own survival, but the survival of one's species. And maybe sometimes as human beings we think we're above that. But it's very much a part of us. But we can have a misunderstanding of it too. We can forget that this being that we are in right here, right now, is both form and shunyata at once. Both form and whatever we want to say as a translation, no form or. Now, shunyata is often translated as emptiness, but that has its own problems. I will read a few sections of this book so that you can see what 
this new paradigm can look like. He starts out by saying, as I was indicating, in Mahayana understanding, this Mahayana Buddhist understanding, it is only through intuitive wisdom that one can realize the true nature of the phenomenal world and let go of all clinging to it and reach the other shore of liberation. So our misunderstanding of our incarnation is that we have to cling to it rather than flow with it. That's where we really get stuck. What are we clinging to? We're clinging to a what a, uh, something of the past that we have come to define as the self, right? A separate self, based on all of our past experiences, what we have to protect. It's all based on our past assumptions, right? But what's, what is it about this particular incarnation that we're in right now that we can say is true? It's temporary, right? It's already not. It's already not. Not what, what it was a second ago. Not what we thought it should be. And as you know, this word should has a powerful influence on our lives, stemming from the feeling that we are not what we should be. Great sense of lack, great sense of dis-ease. Trained to feel that way. Unfortunately, this is the other side of education, right? We're all educated well in feeling that we're not what we should be. But through practice, day in, day out, we can realize the true nature of the phenomenal world. We are right here, right now, unencumbered. I can hear all these little voices in this silent room. No, I'm not. We are unencumbered because we have no separate form that is unchanging. It is all in motion, all in the process of becoming. This is shunyata process of becoming. Therefore, we can let go of clinging to it and reach gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhi, svaha. Let go. Gone, gone. Gone beyond. Gone to the other shore. Now, the shore just means right here, right now, open, completely open, not trapped by any idea of it. Just this liberation itself. When I was with my mother 
in her last days, it was so vividly clear. It's such an amazing thing, you know, to... I don't know if some of you have had this experience uh, and some may have this experience, but to be with the one who gave birth to you as she is dying and to be present at that moment of dying into birth is really amazing. So the process of dying is a process of grasping and letting go at the same time. And they are in struggle for some time. And the process of grasping, or in my mother's case, gasping for breath, which I think we all do in a way, not realizing it, gasping for more of what we think we need. This kind of universal misunderstanding of breath. So gasping, and at the same time, with the help of compassionate medical care, some sedation, allowing that gasping to become a kind of dissolving, letting go. So that breath could be just as it is instead of as it is seen as being needed. This neediness is really where suffering occurs. Well, as I say, truly a remarkable experience to go through that with one's mother or with another person one loves or even as several of us have done with friends, even with strangers, to be there, to be with this process, feeling that shift from grasping to letting go. And realizing that it isn't just a matter of this particular physical form, but that it is every moment. We can practice this so that we can live in this letting go way, in this liberated way, while we are still in these bodies. If we do so, and this is kind of... um, Illogical. If we do so, then we can care for these bodies in an appropriate way. When we don't have this understanding of letting go, of this knowing everything changes, everything is in process, the energy is always creating new form, if we think we have to be stuck somewhere, then we don't treat ourselves very well. The issues that arise of self-abuse, whether it's through addiction or through some kind of um, bodily harm, mental harm, 
occur because we haven't learned how to experience this just letting go of each moment as it arises. Feeling gratitude and feeling this giving it all away. This is really what our breathing, Zazen, is all about, right? Therefore, we can take care of this temporary form with appreciation because it is what is allowing us to have this heart-mind understanding, right? Just as we are, not as we should be, but as we are. Making all the mistakes we make according to what? I don't know. But somehow the internalized shoulds are very strong. So making all the mistakes as an example to ourselves of loving compassion generated through our disappointment, through our disappointment which is triggered by our clinging to something that is no longer appropriate. It doesn't mean we don't learn from the past, but it means that we are free of any rigid structure that we thought was the self based on that past, right? Free. So I'm not getting very far in this book, am I? Let's see, I have so many things I wanted to share with you, but we can take the next year. This is the Heart Sutra. It goes on. He starts out by... um, speaking about the longer version of the sutra, which is chanted in uh, Tibetan practice, where there's a prologue. And in the prologue, the, uh, the Buddha is there. But the Buddha doesn't speak. The Buddha doesn't teach. The Buddha is there in silence and is in samadhi, in complete Oneness with all that is. And it's freedom from being something. It's all that is in shunyata. And the silence implies that the Buddha, as he quotes, is no longer simply the teacher, but is transformed into the principle of enlightenment. A silent, eternal, luminous presence. The Dharmakaya. The awakened mind that is identical with every phenomenon in the universe. So when we sit, this is what we are one with this principle of enlightenment, this silent, eternal, numinous presence, Dharmakaya. Of course, as I said, we're so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as a separate self that it's very hard for us to enter into it, isn't it? All those thought forms keep dragging us back into what we have perceived as the self instead of this 
silent, eternal, numinous presence. But anyway, it's enough at this point to know that the prologue to the present, the prologue to the Heart Sutra, this prologue meaning all of it, beginningless, endless, is right here. This is the witness to our own taking birth and dying. We are our own witness. So we have in this Heart Sutra the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. And Ava is the Sanskrit word for looking down or beholding or, as I've been speaking of, being with. Behold. To be with one who is dying. To behold. Ava. Be with. Loka is the phenomenal world, and Lokita, he says, refers to its doings, the doings of the phenomenal world. So beholding with no stake in it, beholding, just openly beholding the doings of the phenomenal world at this moment, including our inner dimension external dimension, all of it, beholding. And Ishvara can mean the Lord or the deity or the one who is looking down at the world from this vantage point of everywhere. There's a related etymological formation for Ishvara, which is sound. So as we know, it has come to mean Kanzeon, one who hears all sound. In the Japanese, Avalokiteshvara. Guanyin in Chinese. Kanon or Kanzeon in Japanese. So the one who beholds the doings of the phenomenal world and hears cries, hears these cries with compassion. This is Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. How the Heart Sutra begins. Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And as you know, sometimes in the iconography of Avalokiteshvara, you see a Bodhisattva with a thousand arms. And on each hand, there is an eye. So a thousand arms and eyes. Therefore, the significance of this is we, of course, we are Avalokiteshvara in our practice, in our vow, and we can hear, not only hear all cries, but see what is appropriate. How do we respond to see clearly? Therefore, 
knowing. Okay. How to act. How not act. Just be with. And another interesting point is that the Bodhisattva of Compassion began in India as a male Bodhisattva and then was made into a female figure when Avalokiteshvara became Guanyin in China and in many representations in Japan and Korea and Tibet, becoming a female figure. And um, Musong says in traditional patriarchal societies, male archetypes were associated with the roles of priest, warrior, and merchant. And religious and social hierarchies arose from these roles, as we well know. These same societies associated compassion and caring with feminine qualities and assigned them to female deities in the religious pantheon. So we have a balance in Avalokiteshvara with this female figure dedicated to care and love as we associate with a mother. In Mahayana cosmology, he points out, Prajna Paramita, the perfection of wisdom, is seen as the mother of all the Buddhas. So not only Avalokiteshvara as a female iconographical figure, but Prajna Paramita itself, this perfection of wisdom teaching in Mahayana Buddhism itself is the mother of all the Buddhas. Mother as a source from which all things are born, all phenomena are born. And shunyata, emptiness, as the source of liberation for all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Therefore, we sit with the wisdom of shunyata, which we have in the next part of the Heart Sutra. Shariputra is also in this Heart Sutra. And Shariputra is um, a kind of uh, an example of all of us who don't quite get it. One of the wisest of the disciples of the Buddha, Shariputra. But he's being presented in the Heart Sutra as perhaps someone who comes with a degree of um, skepticism, uh, what is this really all about, and can't quite grasp shunyata. Perhaps his understanding is that of the Buddhist philosophy of Abhidhamma, which is the view that dharmas, that phenomena themselves, are the ultimate units of experience, like atoms. So coming from that, and then coming upon this sutra, this highest form of wisdom, Prajnaparamita, 
and coming to see that all units of experience, whether we call them dharmas or atoms, are ultimately empty. And this teaching of shinyata begins where the philosophy of early Buddhism, Abhidhamma, no longer is helpful. So next time I will do some uh, talk on what he really examines here in this book regarding quantum physics and the Mahayana understanding of reality. But the most important thing for us day in and day out is to open to this non-clinging, this reality that we are already entitled to realize. We don't need anyone else's words. We have it right here, right now, in our own intuitive wisdom.